Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 13 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 51 in our series. And we're wearing out the tropics, Luke. It's uh, getting kind of crazy out there. Tropics have been running around with their hair on fire this past week, especially. It's just been tremendous how much has yeah, popped up. Yeah, but... and um, I mean, there are two going right now, and both of them are, are coming to, into fruition right now as uh, as we're recording this, and, and uh, both of them could be annoying. So uh, today we're going to talk with Jamie Rome from the National Hurricane Center. Jamie runs the unit at the NHC responsible for the storm surge forecasts, and boy, have they been busy. And he's led the program to elevate the profile of storm surge as a major hurricane hazard, which of course it is. Uh, pretty much all of the maps and the messaging you see in an advisory have come from the Storm Surge Unit's multi-year program to improve and expand storm surge forecasting. Our conversation with Jamie Rome about Sally and Laura and storm surge in general is coming up in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Thursday, September 17th, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, tune in to Channel 10 in South Florida for Local 10 News or Local10.com, where you can always watch Local 10 News live and free. If you don't have TV or you can't get to the TV and you want to watch the news, it's always on Local10.com. Or download the Max Tracker Hurricane app, of course, for the latest information, or the Local 10 Weather app for the current weather information. Okay, we've been um, focusing on Sally, of course, here the last few days, and uh, boy, do we hate slow moving storms right it's not just it's not just in hurricanes but just in general yeah the problem comes in in the forecast and if you've got this storm that's out there wobbling around and barely making a move you don't know where the center is going to come and of course the worst of the impacts everybody wants to know where that will occur will be near and to the right of where that center comes ashore. So if you've got this thing that's just dawdling along out there, sometimes, you know, Sally was out there for over a day trying to figure out where it's going to go, even though it's so close to the coast, it, you just can't do it. And it, it drives Yeah, because there's mad. no dominant flow, I think is the main thing, right? When you, have, when you have like a river of air in the atmosphere, that river is taking the storm. And, and you forecast the river, right? You kind of get where the storm is going. But when you don't have that, then it can be internal uh, aspects of the storm that affect where it goes. And it can be small, very difficult to measure or even impossible to measure um, aspects of the atmosphere that there are little details in the atmosphere that uh, direct it where it goes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's what makes it makes it tough. You know, something else that struck me about Sally, you spoke to Dr. Louis Uccellini earlier this season about this, and that is the climate change connection. Now, you can never take one storm and focus, uh, you know, this means this about climate change. But could you toss it into the heap of, hey, we're checking some boxes here. It's another slow moving storm. It's another one that produced tremendous amount of rain. And it seems that the consensus effect of climate change in the term of hurricanes would be slow moving, more rainfall. And uh, just, to, just a question, just curious about that, how it'll be studied down the line. We don't know right now, I assume is the answer. Yeah, we, we can't necessarily attribute this storm, but there are people that did research on Harvey, obviously, and, and indicate that uh, it seems logical that there is more moisture in the atmosphere. The atmosphere is in general warmer. So therefore it rains more at the very least. This issue of the forward movement being different 
uh, is kind of controversial. And what they're settling on is different parts of the atmospheric flow on average might have different, uh, different changes with climate. I mean, the airflow around the planet is different. Right. So it could make it be faster in some areas and slower in other areas and in general on average. Um, But the main thing is when you live in a flat place like the Gulf Coast uh, with storm surge, uh, high propensity of storm surge, it's obviously all a problem. But Sally, uh, I mean, was really the forecasts were unusually bad. The models were kind of all over the place. And I don't recall any model kind of winning that and having it be so far east, I mean, east of just east of Mobile Bay. Uh, I mean, the the average errors for Sally were well above average. Um, and like you say, having it be so close to the coast and have, have errors be above average, really unusual because uh, when storms are near the coast, like Sally, you know, National Weather Service, NOAA, deploy kind of all the resources to try and make the forecast the best they can be. Sure. Right. They measure the atmosphere uh, ever so much more with aircraft and balloons and and other stuff. So uh, so it is uh, it is disappointing and surprising and kind of humbling uh, that that uh, sometimes the storms just don't do what they're uh, what the computers think they're going to do and spe- or the humans. Yeah. And speaking of that, something else that's been the talk of weather Twitter is the typically reliable European weather model and one that's one of the greatest, you know, as far as uh, if you look back at its reputation and the season has been not its typical self. Even the ensembles, the ones where they take a whole bunch of different uh, you know, starting points, essentially, of the storm and then try to give you a fan of what could happen, it's been off as well. There have been some uh, ideas, some theories floated, and it maybe it's tied to COVID and the lack of transcontinental uh, flights and the data that those airplanes inject into the computers with that lack, that could be an issue. There was also a big upgrade that was done to that model at the beginning of the season, I believe. And they're not sure if maybe that's contributing to it, but as a whole, it's interesting to look back and say, you know, the season we haven't had period one kind of standout, typically reliable weather model. It's been, it keeping right. us been, on it's been all over the place. Yeah. And the Euro has been kind of crappy, uh, notably crappy uh, on occasion. And, but in the GFS, there's a update coming to the GFS for the ensembles, the, the GFS um, ensemble system, which will have more ensembles and a bigger spread. This latest generation of GFS, if you look at the ensembles, they all seem to be going the same place. Yeah. They don't have uh, enough variation in them. Anyway, they don't, they've done work on that. And uh, so we'll get better ensembles moving forward. And most people think ensembles are where it's at in terms of you know, weather forecasting advances. So we'll see. And speaking of annoying, slow-moving storms, there's another system developing in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, they're going to go out and look at it with an aircraft this afternoon. And it seems likely to turn into a tropical depression and maybe even likely to turn into a tropical storm, which if it is the next one would be Wilfred. And, um, you know, here we go again of another Gulf storm without a lot of steering uh, going on with it. Yeah. Yeah. And on top of that, after it's, you know, whatever it becomes, we're into the Greek alphabet. If it does develop (laughs) for the second time in history, the other time was 2005, we're into the Greek alphabet. And I saw yesterday that the WMO has 
finally come out, maybe it's been out, I just saw it, and released that if there is a, a strong damaging hurricane that takes on the Greek alphabet uh, letter, they won't retire it. So no matter what happens, if you have Hurricane yeah. Alpha, it's mm-hmm. going to, there will still be an alpha down the line. And the reasoning was, uh, is that they don't think that this, this Greek alphabet is going to be used enough to warrant retirement of the letters. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes some kind of sense. I still don't think it's the ideal system. I think they'd be better off to have a seventh list of names and just tap into that. Yeah. Uh, feels like the right thing to me because there are plenty of A names, B names, C, D, E, F names. You know, it's the problem letters are the ones when you get farther down. And yeah, the Greek alphabet's been around for 3,500 years or something. So it'd be kind of presumptuous to be retiring Greek letters at this point. And then with this system coming that, that is developing in the Gulf, uh, kind of a almost likely Wilfred, I guess, uh, there's a cold front coming into the Gulf too, right? And and that's going to be an interesting dynamic of of the timing of the cold front coming south and this tropical system looks like it's going to drift north, although, again, the models are not very helpful on uh, where exactly it's going to go. Yeah, what will be interesting, too, when you speak of that cold front, is sometimes you get a front that parks out. Uh, and this one's unusually far south from what the models are putting out now for this time of year. They have this vorticity, this spin along that front. And sometimes if they have enough time over the water, they can spin up systems, too. So that's something else that we're going to have to watch, probably the Western Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico, when you say Yeah, especially in, in a year like this, where uh, this reminds me of 2005, where everything that thought about spinning turned into something. I mean, stuff that you would just look at and go, that's just a smudge. That's just not, it would start spinning. <laughs> it's just such an interesting dynamic that that uh, that makes that happen. And then we have Hurricane Teddy out there, which is a uh, you know, 120 mile an hour hurricane. Hurricane hunters are out there right now. Last I saw, that looks like the right number. Uh, kind of heading in the direction of Bermuda once again. I mean, you got to be stupid unlucky to live on a little tiny island in the middle of the ocean and, and keep getting run over by hurricanes. It's really bizarre. Not that we know that this one is going to get, that they're going to get run over again like they did with Paulette, which went with, with the eye went directly over Bermuda, which was crazy. But, uh, but then after Bermuda, there's the question of Northern New England being affected by this, uh, which is, would be a, unusual to say the least yes which too, <laughs> too far out to know right now what what seems to be happening is there's this upper level low and you get uh, it pinches off where and how it pinches off and uh it kicks if it's going to kick teddy to the left and wrap it around and swing it into the northeast doesn't seem likely but we don't know it's not impossible so it's something to yeah, watch. Yeah, it's not like we never saw that happen before, Yeah, as in Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I mean, this is a different different kind of situation. And the, the um, part of the coast that we're talking about here is really used to strong storms. So if you think of this as a nor'easter or something, you know, it uh, the models are painting 970 millibars, more or less. It's, that's a strong storm, but this is like a strong nor'easter, and it's a very rocky, high coast. It's not like the Gulf Coast or the Florida coast or something like that, where you have all this stuff sitting right at water level. Uh, there, 
it's they're really sort of built for strong storms. But still, you know, any any strong uh, tropically based storm is is a significant event. Sure, no question about it. Yeah. So anyway, it's going to that's going to be interesting, but that won't be until um, after the weekend. So okay, let's talk with Jamie Rome, the storm surge specialist and the team lead for the storm surge unit. Uh, that's his title at the National Hurricane Center. He's responsible for storm surge forecasts that are part of the National Hurricane Center advisories. Hi, Jamie. Welcome back to our podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to Hurricane Sally, and then we'll talk about storm surge forecasting in general. So we have this slow-moving, tortuous hurricane, which means that the, the winds have longer to push water ashore, and that is they make more storm surge. And also, there's super weak steering currents, so the landfall point is less certain. It's kind of a storm surge forecaster's worst nightmare, isn't it? Uh, oh. That uh, <laughs> when landfall is highly uncertain because of weak steering currents, but then it's also in an extra bad storm surge location on the Gulf Coast. So, all right, tell us about Sally. Oh, I mean, this is this is a, a storm surge nightmare because um, the the slow forward motion is like you sort of if you ever spun a top, you know, the old toy a top, and when it sits there and it starts to wobble erratically, and you try to predict where the the, the toy is going to go, it, it it's 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 almost impossible. And then on top of that, this section of the coastline is every tiny wobble is night and day in storm surge. And not only that, the the numbers are big, you know, so you, you can go from, um, you know, in a situation like 10 to 15 feet, if it were going in the southeast Louisiana to, to you know, if it moves, you don't get as much storm surge. So these are big, big numbers. And it's even more um, difficult by the fact that if you're familiar with southeast Louisiana, the Mississippi River, um, we often refer to this, and locally they refer to this as West Bank and East Bank. Right, which is not at all West and East in a lot of <laughs> right, it's north, and south. north and South, and every other direction except for West. So and it's east, basically generally. west of the mouth of the Mississippi mm-hmm. and east of the mouth of the Mississippi, with the the river levees themselves forming a sort of a natural wall or barrier. Mm-hmm. So if the storm goes West Bank or west of the mouth, it you know you get huge storm surges over there, but not so much on the east side mm-hmm. and vice versa. And at one time, you remember that the, the, the center was aimed right at the mouth of the river, which means it was impossible to pick which mm-hmm. which side was you know going to end up getting the impact. So, um, yeah, a, a true uh, meat grinder of a storm. Jamie, when you make a forecast of storm surge, let's say 7 to 11 feet or mm-hmm. 6 to 9 feet, whatever, yeah. What exactly are you conveying? How do you take into account the uncertainty that you were just talking about in the forecast for where the storm is going to go and how strong it's going to be? It's, it's kind of similar to the cone. Um, so we take the official forecast, the, the skinny black line, as so many people mm-hmm. like to refer to it, um, and then it, we, we build alternate scenarios based off our typical error in that forecast. And so there's tracks to the left of the official forecast, there's tracks to the right, there's stronger tracks, um, there's storms that are bigger than the forecast because size is really important for storm surge. And then forward speed is um, altered um, to get the timing with the, the tide down. 
And so when you look at this, it really looks like the cone. So you can envision like several tracks that basically represent the cone. And then um, we run a storm surge model. Um, the model we use is called Slosh. And it, on average, about 650 unique scenarios. So if you can envision you know, the model running 650 different hurricanes at the coastline. And then from that, we derive uh, various products. But the one that's most commonly used for the forecasting perspective is what we call the 10% exceedance, which means there's only um, only one out of 10 times will the actual storm exceed that value. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, that, that seems extreme or harsh or cry wolf or all these sort of things. But it's only when you think about the consequences of that forecast does it make sense. We, we typically evacuate in this nation based off storm surge. So imagine if, if I made a forecast based off um, a 50% exceedance or coin flow, basically. Well, or most that, likely, right? Yeah, right, right most mm -hmm. likely. That means that 50% of the time we would be too low and evacuation orders would be um, short or, or, or communities would be left unprepared 50% of the time. Um, I don't know about you, but that seems pretty rough. Um, to, to leave coastal residents ill-prepared 50% of the time. I, I'm guessing I wouldn't survive more than two storms like that. Um, and so um, we kind of, for, for the purposes of public protection, public safety, we kind of are forced into this, what we call reasonable upper bound. Yeah, so, uh, but that's the way we, we do extreme things in general in life, right? We set the thresholds low, when when something really really bad can happen, I mean that's that's just the right. way we think about it. I I use the example when I'm talking to people about this. If I said there was a twenty percent chance that your family was going to be uh, injured and and everything was going to be destroyed if you didn't take some kind of action, would you take action? Everybody says yes. All right, a ten percent chance. All right, right, a five percent chance. Well, where do you stop taking taking action? Right, because uh, if there's some chance that some catastrophic event is going to happen that, that affects uh, your family. So you talked about this distribution of uh, model runs and, and uh, different types of storms that you run to get this broad distribution of possibilities uh, to make the forecast. But does that distribution vary by the fact that like we all talked about, okay, it's a slow moving storm, <sighs> nightmare. Uh, right. That means the forecast is likely to be worse than if it's a, you know, a, a nice, well-developed, uh, clear, here's the eye, here's where it's going kind of thing. Does, does our technology at this point uh, allow for taking into account the, the kind of, you know, uh, poorer than average forecast potential, uh, yeah. the, the, you know, which yeah. is what we had here. It does. It does. Uh, you know, the, it, 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 it's meant to encapsulate the full potential of scenarios that could happen. And obviously, as a storm evolves, every forecast is different. And so the distributions or the possibilities also change. So every storm, every forecast has a new set of distributions and a new set of tracks or a new set of scenarios that are based off that particular forecast and the errors inherent therein. And as you can imagine, the closer you get into the you know landfall, the, the errors are compressed. And so the scenarios um, also get 
tighter and tighter and tighter, and you have less uh, variance in the storms that you're using to create that forecast. So specifically with Sally, uh, where we ended up really with the peak storm surge being in the Western Florida Panhandle, extreme Western Florida Panhandle, right? Doesn't was that? Do we know yet that's, if that's where the yeah. peak was? By the way, no, I mean we're only a day after this all happened. It's, it's actually fascinating, and this this is a remarkable lesson in storm surge. We got similar storm surge in southeast Louisiana outside of the, you know, the federal levee system encasing New Orleans. Mm -hmm. We got similar storm surge values. You mean Shell Beach and over there? Shell Beach with a 30 knot north wind (laughs) as we got in the Florida panhandle with a category two landfall. Mm -hmm. Now think about that. That, That's why storm surge is, is so impossibly difficult to describe and communicate because that you, you can imagine the layperson would hear me say that. I mean, look at the look on Luke's face. You can imagine <laughs> the layperson hears me say that and, and would think that I'm off my rocker. Right. You know, how could you get uh, similar? Shell Beach recorded a, a peak surge of about 5.6 mean higher high water, mm-hmm. which is just our way of above high, above normal high tide, more or less. Right. And Pensacola was basically the same. Yeah, right. Same same value. Um, and there was actually higher surges in, in southeast Louisiana that, um, you know, weren't recorded. There was actually a levee topped, overtopped in uh, yeah. southeast Louisiana. I bet you people didn't know that either. So Down it was in a Plaquemines Parish yeah, somewhere on there? St. Bernard's Parish. It was St. Bernard's Parish, right. right. Oh, I saw the, the uh, Delacroix the, Highway was, uh, was uh, overtopped yeah. down there. So when did... Uh, you know, just thinking about Sally, I mean, because obviously the focus right now is on Pensacola. I mean, this water still hasn't completely gone down because of all the river flooding that's that's coming down to the coast. You know, it, was this, it just felt like to me that this was really an unusual situation that we had this sort of increase in storm surge uh, potential really late in the game. Was it not? Was, it, was this like... Because the forecast kept changing, the storm kept yep. going to the right side of the cone over and over and over and over again. Yep. So it ended up uh, 100 miles or so to the east of of the two-day landfall point. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was an insane uh, situation um, because as we moved from southeast Louisiana to the Florida panhandle, um, you know, we... There was Mississippi and then there was Alabama in both of those locations. I mean, some of those locations, you can look at them wrong and produce a five foot storm surge. Yeah. Mobile Um, Bay. Yeah. yeah, Mobile Bay. And at Mm -hmm. one point, you know, we had it making landfall just west of Mobile Bay where the the eye wall on the east side, the radius of maximum winds, we're going to go right into the bay, mm-hmm. um, which for a cat one storm is, is 10 feet of storm surge. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what do you do? I mean, what do you do in that case? If that scenario materializes from a timeline perspective, because I have the, the evacuation clearance times, they were out of, they were running out of time to call an evacuation, mm-hmm. right? So you've got no choice, but in that situation to sound the alarm, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Here it comes. You gotta you gotta call the evacuation and get people moving out of there. When, when what actually happened is the storm uh, made landfall um, east east of them, obviously, which still blowing water into the bay basically blew it out, and you got a negative, what people like to call a negative storm surge, or just a drawdown. Right. Um, and so you you can imagine the public is probably looking at this and thinking, you know, these guys can't forecast. You know, they forecast. 
10 feet storm surge, you get negative five. You know, that's a that's a miss of 15. Um, but, you know, you got to think of it in the sense that we're not we're, we're conveying risk for public safety. Like, you know, you're, you're trying to communicate what the potential risk is in a given situation. Luke? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the National Hurricane Center website, you have several storm surge forecast maps. One of them is very visually pleasing. We love it on television. Right. It's called the Potential Storm Surge Flooding Map or Inundation Map. Right. So to distinguish it from a flat-out storm surge forecast, how high the water right. could get at the coast, right. is it a good characterization to say this map shows the area that could have storm flooding at the coast and inland, taking into account you know, reasonable variations in strength and track and all around the National Hurricane Center forecaster. How would you describe it? Uh, it? It could is the right word. And it's what you should prepare for because it's taking into account all of the uncertainties that you know none of us can forecast. The storm wobbles, strengthens, you know, what have you, speeds up, slows down. Um, but the, the, the other thing too is, is um, it shows how far inland the water could go. And this is a remarkable advancement in technology. Brian remembers this back in the days, you know, all we used to do was was report or forecast the water rise at the coast. Mm -hmm. And it was left as a, a mathematical exercise to the user to somehow project that water inland, you know, over topography with friction. Um, which was impossible to do. It, it's impossible to do. And so while we could and have been successfully communicating the risk of storm surge at the immediate coastline, we struggled for years to convey the threat as it moved over land and inland up rivers. Now, I'll give you a real world example of that. In Florence, the worst storm surge was in Newburn a solid 100 miles inland. It takes an hour and a half for you to drive to the beach from Newburn. Worst storm surge was 100 miles inland. When I talked to the EM of Craven County afterwards, he said you would have to be living under a rock to not know storm surge was coming here, owing to that type of technology. So I think it's, I think it's better to say both could and how it shows how far the water could go inland as well. Yeah, both. All right, I, I'm, I can tell that you spend a lot of time thinking about this and explaining the differences in the information that's in the inundation graphic versus the storm surge forecast, which is in the new graphic this year, but it's always been in the hurricane advisory. Uh, and I get it. They're, they're really, they're, they're similar things, but they really are different things. And uh, the way we've settled on it, actually the way I've settled on it anyway, is that I use the inundation graphic to show how far inland and the extent of places that could be covered, but only deal with numbers at the coast, the coast. <laughs> right? At so that coast. we don't have multiple numbers going on, right? right. So do you think that, that storm surge forecasting is really difficult to communicate fundamentally because the phenomena is so complex and, and it varies so much over just a slight difference in track and intensity and angle and storm size and or, or, you know, what I know you spent a lot of time thinking about how you're going to communicate the science that you do. You know, what thoughts do you have about how uh, about the challenges and, and how they're, they're kind of working out in, in the real world? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a good question. I don't think anybody's asked me that question um, in a while, if ever. Um, I mean, first, we got to step back and, and look at the context evolution of the, of the nation's hurricane and storm surge program. Um, 
whenever something changes as quickly as we've changed the storm surge program, you know, it's it's not a flip of a switch. You're you're not going to get 100% compliance and 100% understanding overnight. Most people could care less what the National Hurricane Center does until a storm comes and then suddenly they see a brand new product, a brand new depiction for the first time and they're trying to square that with the experience they had in a hurricane five, 10 years ago when the technology was totally different. And mentally in their minds, they're different, right? Mm -hmm. And and what does psychology tell us? If people see conflicting information, they're gonna reject the new one. You know, they're gonna go back to their historical experiences of a hurricane, which is typically uh, categorically based. Right. They're going to go back to, okay, I got hit by a cat three and I didn't flood. And so now you're telling me I'm going to flood on a cat one. That makes no sense whatsoever. Um, And so these changes need time to just sort of stew in people's mind. Um, So it doesn't surprise me that we have um, some confusion and work to do with respect to education that that should be expected that anybody who's in public education and, and public awareness would would totally expect that. Um, and so now we're sort of working on the next phase of, the, you know, how do we, I think we've done a good job of explaining that storm surge is bad and, and you know, you know, it's not good. You should probably pay attention and then leave when, when told to do so. And that's evidenced by the decreasing number of deaths in this nation due to storm. I mean, if you've looked at the last, in the trends in mortality, um, the hurricanes, uh, more people died in generator carbon monoxide poisoning in Laura then died in the last 11 hurricane landfalls from storm surge. Yeah. Take that in for a moment. More people died in carbon monoxide poisoning in Laura, one storm, than died in the previous 11 storms, including Laura, from storm surge. And five of those 11 were major hurricanes. Yeah. Michael, right? It's also so a I testament that, to, well, it's a it's a tremendous testament to the work that's been done on storm surge. Also a testament to how poor the communication is about generators, because right. so, because they're so dangerous uh, sort of things. People that, that storm surge is bad, and you got to yeah. go and evacuate yeah. and all that sort of stuff. What we have to work on now is um, now there's this natural curiosity of what is storm surge and how it works, and so people are kind of digging into the nuts and bolts now. Yeah, and I totally agree with what you said, too, Jamie, about people, they take what the forecast is, they compare it to what they've dealt with in the past. And it gets tricky because sometimes people will say, I was in a Cat 3, whatever hurricane, and maybe they were on the far outer bands. You know, to say I was in a Cat 3, were you? Were you really? Or were you somewhere in the vicinity well outside the worst of the storm, which is commonly the case, I think, in Uh, Maybe that gets lost. But how much of the challenge in the U.S. is because we lay everything out there for everybody to see. You know, the inundation map is right there on the National Hurricane Center forecast. Anybody can go or on the website, I should say. Anybody can go there. They can look at that. That map especially might be best left to trained emergency managers. But by policy, it's all out there for the public, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that debate has um, raged on for the, the 12 years that I've been at the helm. Um, a very um, a passionate debate, I should say, or a spirited debate. Um, my, my, my thoughts on this is um, it's not for me to decide 
what the general public should and should not have. I mean, that, that's a big uh, overreach on behalf of, of the federal government. Instead, it's for me to communicate the risk to everyone equally and give them the opportunity to make conscious good decisions on, on you know, what they should do. Um, now, granted, there are some people who don't see it that way, um, but those people are, I would say, more and more in the minority as we march on in time. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, you know, maybe there's more people who are skeptical and I just don't hear about it, but um, that's, that's been my, my sense is as we've gone deeper and deeper into this evolution, the, the, the folks who argue that the public is not capable of seeing their risk have, have lessened. Let, let me ask it another way. And it's honorable that you don't want to withhold information. This is this is everything that we know. I think that there's um, that's a good way to gain confidence in a user is that, hey, this is what we have. And now you can see it. Let me explain it to you. I, I agree with that. Do you sometimes wish, though, that maybe you could tailor your message to individual audiences in some way? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, that, I think that's the the holy grail of risk communication. Um, but you know, we're, we're all stuck with the resources and tools and limitations that, you know, we've, we've got to work with. Um, and, and we're striving for that goal, you know, passionately with respect to our decision support, you know, so often we'll brief the emergency managers and we'll brief them with a different tone and information and inflection than we might brief, um, you know, media, you know, do a media interview for the general public. Um, you can imagine those conversations are totally different. So even though our products themselves might not be tailored to a given um, audience or constituent, our briefings are. I mean, you can, you can, you can probably envision what some of these discussions with um, emergency managers, parish, uh, EMs, that sort of stuff. Um, it, 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 it's a decidedly different conversation. Yeah, so I can remember a lot of discussion about the media wanting to be on the uh, conference calls with the state emergency management and the local emergency managers and the emergency managers were like, no way, no how, absolutely not, because they want to have the ability to push back and to really probe without... Right. You know, sometimes these people do other things in their lives besides try and understand the nuances of storm surge, uh, you know, 365 days a year. So I agree, by the way, with the media not being part of that call so that emergency managers can can uh, speak freely without it ended up showing up, uh, you know, in the media somehow. So I went back and checked some old advisories and I did not see any storm surge forecasts in the early 60s for Donna or for Carla. But by Betsy in 1965, when it was approaching South Florida, they had them there. Now, they, they were different than, you know, they were just above the normal tide level back then. And for most of the time, they've been uh, that way. Did they understand storm surge back then? Do you know? You know, they, they yeah. forecast storm tides, um, right. you know, slightly different. You know, was it a wild guess, or were they doing calculations? Was there was there good science uh, by the mid '60s uh, in this field? There was shockingly good science on this. Um, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm placing it within the context of the '60s, yes, and in the U.S. actually uh, led the world in, in this, uh, especially during the '70s. Um, and in some of the same technology and equa equations developed in the '70s and '80s are still 
used and accurate to this day. It's, it's really quite remarkable how far ahead the early adopters of storm surge modeling and forecasting in the U.S. were that long ago. Um, and then, then we went into the 90s, um, which, you know, outside of Andrew, which wasn't a huge storm surge event, uh, you know. Because they were lucky where it hit, right? It was a huge storm surge, but but it happened to hit a place that people weren't weren't at the time. So we we went through this period of, I guess, um, not many big storm surge storms. Mm -hmm. And so um, storm surge research and development modeling kind of languish or froze, I guess, if you will. Although Hugo was a big storm surge uh, event, right? I mean... Right. You know, but it did for whatever reason it, it didn't it didn't hit Charleston it hit mechanics uh, uh, McClellanville right right, uh, right. Yeah. yeah and so um, you know we just went through this period where it just sort of languished if you will and and Ike was really the storm that um, uh, you know could, we had Katrina and there was a little bit of innovation after Katrina um, that's when we went to our probabilistic uh, approach with slosh and then Ike from a public products pers- you know from a public products and communication, Ike was the the straw that broke the camel's back, and that that's when we knew we had to do something. Because if I remember correctly, I think we were predicting 20 to 25 feet on the Bolivar Peninsula, and 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 people didn't leave. I mean, how often do you see us forecast 20 to 25 feet? I mean, short of well, me it was the Cat Two, which was the confusion point, surge. right? It was the Cat Two uh, issue with the monstrous storm surge forecast. Was again that disconnect you were talking about, right? So that was when we knew we had a problem because you're rarely going to see values 20 to 25 feet in our public advisory. Um, And yet it still didn't move people. That's when we knew that simply conveying the numbers along the coastline just wasn't enough and we had to do something different. Yeah, I know people. I've been to a wedding, Jamie, on the Boulevard Peninsula and the people lost their houses. I went there. The wedding was well after Ike, of course, and they'd rebuilt uh, their house. But they were telling me stories about people that didn't believe it. They just said, uh-uh, no, it's Cat 2. The Cat 2 yeah. thing kept them. They're like, we, we've dealt with these before. It's going to be okay. And uh, one of them was an older guy, and uh, he ended up making out, but just by the skin of his teeth. Uh, right. it, it just horrible, uh, harrowing stories that were coming out of there. But, you know, right. we are talking about some of the innovations that have come. You touched on some of this. Sounds like Slosh was a big one in the storm surge forecasting. Uh, what other big discoveries were there or were there? Maybe it was just a gradual increase. I assume computing power had a lot to do with the forecast proving. Well, I mean, so originally when we would use Slosh, it was uh, based off the what we call a single track deterministic, meaning we take the forecast and make one and only one Slosh run based off that. So there was no function of uncertainty in it, right? Um, so advances in computing have enabled us to now do this this ensemble approach where we can run 600 on average 650 unique storms uh, at the coastline, and then from that you can derive a, a myriad of probabilistic answers, and, and you know you can look at all sorts of things like what's the probability of a levee overtopping, and so you can imagine the types of decision support I can do is now you know far 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 greater. But the other big one was this this inundation mapping, the ability to project how far inland the water can go versus just saying it's the, you know, the water rise at the coast is going to be 10 to 15 feet. And, you know, you go figure it out for yourself, whether that's a block inland or, you know, 30 miles inland. 
right? So in Maine, it's a you know it's it's a row of homes, inland. and and in uh, Southwest Louisiana, it's you know 25 miles inland, and you know before it was just left to the user, it was left as an exercise to the user to figure out whether or not that water was going to come inland far enough to impact them. So inundation mapping, I think, really changed the game with respect to uh, communicating how far inland it could go. Yeah, it sounds like definitely sophisticated that, the slosh model too, with all the different runs and scenarios that you guys play out. You know, I went to school at the University of Oklahoma. It's a premier severe weather school, you know, for tornadoes and severe thunderstorms. But, and I just, I have a bachelor's, I don't have an advanced degree, but a storm surge was touched on I don't know, two days, something right. like that. You know, we had a we had a little glaze of it. It's right. just not the focus of the program there. Uh, but do they teach us stuff in other meteorology schools, maybe FSU or something? It doesn't seem like there are that many storm surge specialists around. And it, there isn't, and it's uh, you, know, you know, hiring for me is really, really hard um, because you have to know oceanography and meteorology. Yeah. So there aren't many people who have that dual degree. There are a few, uh, you know, my alma mater, uh, North Carolina State University does a dual oceanography, uh, meteorology uh, background. Um, and so you either got to hire a meteorologist and teach them the ocean physics, or you got to hire an oceanographer and teach them meteorology. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's hiring is really, really, really hard. Um, and when we get somebody who's good at it, we, you know, we desperately try to hang on to them with, you know, dear life, um, you know, because turnover in something this specialized can be, you know, devastating. You know, you got to go back to the drawing board and teach somebody all over again. Yeah, I can imagine. So let's go back to Hurricane Laura uh, last month. We talked here on the podcast about the storm's uh, initial possible threat to the Houston uh, metro area. Uh, some very credible computer forecast models were showing a serious threat there, although the Hurricane Center never completely a bit on that, which was an amazing bit of uh, forecasting we talked about. And because storm surge going up Galveston Bay is a huge issue in uh, Houston. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Talk about what you guys in the storm surge unit were thinking as there was some potential of a Houston threat. And then it eventually moved to Lake Charles, uh, became a Lake Charles threat. And then there was the final outcome that just barely saved Lake Charles from getting flooded. Well, the, the first thing that was on our mind early in the storm was um, Rita and the in the horrific evacuation scenario um, that played out. Now, granted, some of that was Katrina, you know, aftermath of Katrina, but still um, a, a straight shot into the Houston Galveston area is um, you're, you're looking at two to three million people asked to go. Um, and then and Rita, probably some extra ones would go just because it's a scary right. damn thing. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so in Rita, over 100 people perished in the evacuation alone. Mm -hmm. Think about that. Over 100 people died. Or, you know, their mortality was due to just the evacuation. Process. Yeah, it was 100 degrees or, or, or right. 100 and something degrees. It was this crazy, incredible thing. Yeah. So, you know, we were desperately trying to ensure that any evacuations for the Houston Galveston area were strategic, surgically strategic and orchestrated. So that was, you know, that was the first thing is to make sure that, you know, it didn't spook the herd, if you will. And so just working very, very closely and diligently with local officials to, you know, keep them well 
praised of the threat and you're going to get some storm surge, but right now it doesn't look like you're going to get a ton. In the new P surge is what let us do that, right? Everybody talks about how the 10% exceedance or the reasonable worst case is terrible. But think about it. When we're briefing Houston, I could, I could brief them and say, look, even if I run a storm on the far left-hand side of the cone, I still don't get storm surge in your area. Well, were you, were you how, nervous, how, though, because some of the models did show, you know, some credible models were, were showing storms to the left of, of the entrance to Galveston Bay, which would you know, potentially put storm surge up. Uh, right. into the bay. I mean, I mean right, exactly. the, the Hurricane Center uh, right. forecasters didn't bite on that, which was, right. to me, blew my mind, actually, that, right. that they stayed with the plan brilliantly. Um, right. But so you had the official forecast, but then you had these, these right. you know, this computer model thing that was had these, these scenarios that were stunning. Yeah, I mean, and think about it from, a, and, and this is why working at the Hurricane Center is so emotionally and psychologically, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, it'll, it'll you know, turn you into a shell of your former self. Your choices are, um, you know, you can, you can, you can brief that, Hey, a 20 to 25 foot storm surge is possible in Houston, Galveston prompt a shutdown of the nation's energy system, literally. Mm -hmm. Yes. As well as evacuate 3 million people. And possibly kill them in the evacuation process, some of them in the evacuation. Those are your choices. Or you can try to make the best possible forecast you can on the science you've got. And in the back of your mind, you always know that, you know, if this doesn't turn out well, then, you know, I'll be digging ditches after this. Um, but still, that, and that's why working at the Hurricane Center, and, and I mean, these folks are heroic to lay it on the line, to put their career and reputation on the line every single time and try to put the best possible forecast out there, regardless of the of the consequences. You know, just, just I mean, it's it's our forecasts are always brutally honest. This is what we think. And, you know, if, if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. But this is what we think. And was I nervous? Of course, there, there's not a single storm I haven't been nervous. There's no sleeping in storm surge. You know, even if you're laying in bed, you're awake because, um, you know, everything can go wrong on you in a moment. So so then talk about the the way that the, the storm kind of migrated to the right. Yet another one kept migrating to the right, right and the issue with Lake Charles and then right. what finally happened in the end and how that compared to the forecast. Yeah. So um, it was going back to our early discussion about Mobile um, Bay, uh, except in this case, it's uh, what is it? Calcasieu Calca uh, Pass. Pass. Yeah. Pass. Um, so um, that is basically a highway of water straight into Lake Charles. And if you put a major hurricane to the west of there, like Rita, um, you'll shoot water straight up that thing and right into the city. Um, and, and you can look at the what happened in, in, in Rita to you know see just how devastating that and is. And it's like 25 miles. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a long, right. 25, like 30 a miles up there, right? It's a long basically, way. Yeah. It's basically a pipeline. I yeah. mean, the water just shoots right up in an instant. Yeah. Um, and so remember, the most of the forecast, you know, were, were over there towards Port Arthur area, mm -hmm. which was perfectly aligned. Um, you know, so we had no choice but to communicate that potential risk. 
uh, to do anything short of that is, is, is negligent. Mm -hmm. In the end, the storm um, went right over the pass. So the eye went literally sort of right over the pass, which means the strongest onshore winds were about 15 miles east in Cameron Parish in a, in a community uh, Grand Chenier area. And so the storm surge was over there. Um, USGS, I don't know if you've guys seen this yet, USGS just came in with a, a perfect high water mark of 17.1 feet. Perfectly still. That's not waves, that's perfectly still. So the actual water rise was higher than that because the waves are you know, on top of that. So um, the 15 to 20 feet materialized. It just didn't hit a populated area. And unfortunately, in this day and age, you know, media somewhat fixated on populated areas. So initially, everyone reported that you know, the storm surge vanished into thin air, you know, disappeared, which anybody knows anything about Cat 4s in the Gulf of Mexico is, no, it, it, that just doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, a few days later, once folks really started to get into Cameron Parish, I mean, it's, it's absolute devastation. Yeah, it's terrible. You haven't seen um, seen the footage. I mean, communities or some of those communities might not come back. It's such it's so devastating. Um, so, um, so the 15 to 20 did happen. It just happened about 15 miles east of the pass, and therefore didn't have that highway to get into Lake Charles, if you will. So that had to be super annoying to see people, even some pretty established. A meteorologist that quickly, I mean, right after the storm, say the forecast wasn't good and uh, the prediction was 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 no good right after the storm. What do you attribute that to? Is that the media latching on to the big high numbers, you know, and, and ignoring the range in the forecast? Is that a communication issue? What do you think? You know, it's 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 a combination of two things. First and foremost, this has always happened. Always. And people don't learn their lesson. They get right back up and make the same mistake all over again. Brian, you remember this. In the first eight hours after Katrina, everyone was in New Orleans saying New Orleans dodged a bullet. Mm -hmm. I remember. I remember it vividly because we kept getting um, media requests for quotes. And I refused. I refused to do any media interviews because the disaster takes a long time to unfold. Yes. That, well, that morning, uh, I was on CBS that morning actually on the network, and I was on WFOR at the same time. And uh, David Bernard was actually in the weather office with me, and we were monitoring WWL uh, out of New Orleans, which is the main radio station in New Orleans for news, and to try and be aware of what was happening. And, uh, and you know, we were saying, so far, so good. But the water is still high. But so far, so good. And then we got the first word from WWL that the uh, flood wall had failed on the Industrial Canal. And then immediately the flash flood warning came out from the weather service over there. And and I went right on CBS. I, I mean, this all happened one minute before I went on CBS. Uh, and I said, just word just in of a flood wall failure and and serious flooding on the east side of New Orleans and, and so forth. And then it was all downhill uh, from there, of course. But, but you're absolutely right. The, and the same thing happened in Andrew, by the way. The morning, that Monday morning after Andrew, the national media, it was in downtown Miami, said uh, that Miami has dodged a bullet. Well, 
downtown Miami did dodge a bullet, but there were no bullets dodged in, in South Dade, obviously. So I think you had it right, Jamie. The, uh, the fact that the media tends to concentrate, obviously, in the cities and so forth, and they're too quick to say it wasn't what was expected in the downtown area, but that doesn't get to the point. Yeah, and the other thing that's contributing this, Luke, to, to fully address your question is, um, you know, social media has created this this desire to, you know, competition to be first, to be the first person to say something, the first person to tweet something, the first person to have a graphic. You know, everybody's grasping for unique content at the expense of quality and at the expense of accuracy. And I think people were so desperate to be the first ones that they went to that single tide station at Cameron, mm -hmm. that single tide station, and were duped by it. Uh, the peak, the peak surge is never, ever, ever recorded by an in-situ station. Never. I've never seen a landfall yet. Same with wind. The peak wind speed is never, ever, ever reported. And since you're from Oklahoma, you'll appreciate this. So I'll, you know, I'll speak in your terms. How many times have you seen EF4 winds reported in an ASOS station? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't mean that the tornado wasn't there. It just requires a damage survey to fully understand the, the magnitude and extent of the disaster. Yeah, they even take it a step further. If you have a mobile Doppler radar that records EF5 level winds, but it doesn't cause EF5 level damage, it's not an EF5. So they go straight. It's a dam That's a different scale. It's a damage scale rather than a wind scale. So a little bit different. But you, you touched on the what actually happened with Lauren and the storm surge forecast ended up being very good. 17.4, I think, is the number that you just said. Uh, how, what is the process to go out and verify storm surge? Is it looking for high water marks? What, what else do you guys yeah. do? So we still, I mean, this is one of those things Brian talked about earlier, you know, technologies in the sixties, whatever it still sort of exists, this old school, um, boots on the ground. Um, what happens is if there is a structure standing, um, and the walls aren't blown out, um, any water that goes into that structure is stilled meaning the waves are dampened out and you get this really perfect mud line on the wall or in the cabinets. Um, this perfectly stilled straight mud line is what's called a, a high water mark. Sometimes it's a seed line or a grass line. Um, and from that, we can send a survey crew out to survey in an incredibly precise um, measurement of the height above both a vertical datum surveyed and the height above ground. And then from that, we use a model hindcast. In this case, we use slosh, not to run in a forecast mode, but to run in a forensics mode. And we tune it to those uh, high water marks so that we can fill in the gaps between, you know. Oh, wow. and, and, and especially um, in the case of um, that 17, well, I should say National Weather Service survey crew got a, a 16 and a half uh, foot high water mark, two and a half miles inland. So. Do you think it was 16 and a half at the beach? <laughs> yeah, it's not likely. <laughs> right. So, but there was nothing left at the beach. When I, when I had the survey team go to the beach and, and look, there's nothing left mm -hmm. to, you know, blew everything away, basically. But 
using that 16 and a half and the 17.1 from USGS, we tuned a model hindcast and all indications are the peak surge was about 18 to 20 feet. Yeah. You know, I, I actually did a storm surge survey just for myself in um, Super Typhoon Haiyan. Uh, we landed at the airport there, which is on kind of a peninsula to the east of the city of Tacloban. And there was a city hall in one of the uh, neighborhoods over there. They have these the cities are divided into these various neighborhoods. And and the city hall was blown out. And so I kept going up the stairs looking for where where there had to be a line. I said, there has to be a line in here because I can see that all this is blown out and and storm surge obviously came through here. Where was the line? Where was the line? And I finally found grass at in the, on the ceiling of a closet on the second floor, right. right? And so I went up the stairs to the third floor. It was a three-story three thing. And sure enough, there was some grass. It was right at the, the barrier between the second and third floor of this uh, this building. Um, and, you know, but because it was inside and inside a stairwell, obviously that was a good still water kind of, kind of measurement. But I'd never seen anything anything and you know like that i mean that was just an unbelievable event rare yeah, so event but it was, you know similar to what can happen on the gulf coast well first of all um we're running out of people are you available for high watermark <laughs> yeah. the survey alley uh secondly no but your second point is um you will learn more about storm surge doing high watermark and forensics than you'll ever learn from anywhere else and anybody who's ever gone with me on one of these surveys i usually just try to take one or two people with me um, they come away with just a t totally different perspective, usually emotional. Like it's a very emotional experience to have to uh, crawl into someone's house that's been destroyed. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear something crack and look below your foot and it's their family photo or, you know, some precious possession that's just laid out there. I mean, I'm at, 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 that's that's the most vulnerable you ever are as a human is to have everything you own just strewn out like that, you know, just out in the, in the element. So it's a very emotional and powerful experience. If you ever get a chance to um, uh, go on, on one of these, but the power of, you see the strangest stuff. I mean, Brian, you probably remember this after Andrew, you see the strangest stuff in trees mm -hmm. and think how in the world did it get there um you see utter and total destruction and then you'll see something that's so fragile like a you know a glass or a teacup or something like that that survived and and you your, your mind just can't reconcile how 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 this happens it's it, 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 you know I, you know i've often thought about trying to take someone in media with me on one of these surveys to try to somehow capture this and um you know for the, the larger viewing audience the problem is it's such a personal you know you're 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 on people's property and their their things and you know they've just gone through this terrible experience to you know invade their privacy like that is um you know you know pretty rough um but you know, like i said if you ever do one of these surveys it's it's really really powerful yeah, um, when I was a kid, there was a storm in New Jersey, which today we call the Ash Wednesday storm. It was a, not a, a hurricane. It was this horrendous nor'easter that sat right at the Jersey shore and it devastated the southern half of the New Jersey coast. 
and we went down to see my aunt and uncle's house in um, Wildwood, New Jersey, uh, which sat on the bay side of it. And they had two houses. There was a big house up on pilings, and there was a smaller house next to it. They rented one or the other. The smaller house was completely gone, just completely wiped away. It was at, it was at ground level. The house on the pilings had damage, but it uh, more or less survived, as I recall. But the thing that sticks in my mind is as we were driving back from that you know, sort of peninsula that stuck into the bay, uh, we passed by and I look over to the left and the kitchen wall from that little house is there, sitting there with the picture still hanging on the wall that was in the kitchen behind the table, yeah. right? Like the whole hunk of kitchen wall was there. The rest of the house was completely gone, but that that wall survived with the picture hanging on on a yep. nail on the wall. It's uh, see, crazy. As a scientist, it's really hard to square mm -hmm. what you see in these damage surveys. It's, it's hard to to reconcile. And Brian, you'll you'll know the story because you've seen my some of my presentation at conferences. Um, one of the most powerful things I ever saw was after Irma in the Florida Keys. Um, you're sort of walking along doing the survey. So you're you're you know you're all business trying to you know do this in a scientifically uh, sound way. And I looked down and there was this waterlogged Winnie Pooh toy. And and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It, it, you know, the 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 veneer that you have to not be emotional and be a scientist. Um, was totally stripped away by this uh, this small toy, um, and uh, you know, that's when you know it's real. For the people who go through this, it's real. And, and Brian, I actually found uh, the owner of that really? uh, Winnie the Pooh uh, toy, or rather their their parents, um, and so was able to have a conversation with them, uh, you know, about what they they went through. So that that was a cool little story. Uh, just to sort of show, you know, this, it's, this is real. This is real people's lives and possessions. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bottom line. It's a challenging business. There's no, and frustrating at times, uh, business, I'm sure. Jamie, um, congratulations on the work that uh, you guys have done there and the, the way you've advanced the science uh, into the public arena. It's, it's, uh, it's great. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to explain it. There's, uh, for whatever reason, a sudden uptick in, in curiosity, interest in storm surge. So an opportunity to speak, uh, you know, free form like this for roughly an hour is, um, is golden from, from my perspective. So you know, thank you so much. All right. Well, we, uh, we appreciate your work. We appreciate having you here. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jamie. So Jamie and his team have made uh, tremendous progress, you know, in uh, making storm surge forecasts. But first, they're dependent on the forecast of the storm in general being pretty good. And then communicating it to people is tough. It's just complicated. You can imagine here in South Florida trying to communicate the variety of storm surge possibilities. Yeah, it's extremely challenging. It's tricky business. And I mean, even for those, those of us that look at this a lot, you still have to take some mental horsepower to put to a storm surge forecast to try to make you know, a, a sense about what it means for you. And I think it may be one of these things where we've talked about this before, where the science is exceeding the ability to communicate it well. And it's it's really challenging to get out the proper communication with the, with the storm surge forecast. But the scientists over there are doing a, a wonderful job. Jamie and his crew with the slosh and, uh, and the inundation map, all the strides that they've made, uh, no doubt have saved lives. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, if you just think about going back to storms that we're, you know, some people here are familiar with, um, Hurricane Wilma in 2005, you know, that was a kind of a weird situation because the wind came from the south. So in Biscayne Bay, it pushed all this water up against the islands in Biscayne Bay and to some degree, the west side of Miami Beach, but it didn't put a big surge against the mainland. You know, it was just this slightly west of south kind of flow where normally we think of in South Florida, the biggest surges being where Andrew put it in South Dade because of the big opening uh, between Key Biscayne and, and, uh, you know, the north end of the Florida Keys there in Biscayne National Park. There's that big hole there where the water from the ocean can come into the bay. And then that surge pushes all the way over uh, across the shallow bay into South Dade. That's where the 20-foot potential storm surges are for, uh, for you know, metropolitan South Florida. South of the coastal ridge, I think we've talked about this before, and as susceptible to surge as southwest Florida is, mainland Monroe, isn't it possible that there could be a surge that could technically go all the way across Florida that would be south of the coastal ridge? Yeah, yeah. So the ridge ends at, at today's Cutler Bay, and Homestead, Florida City, uh, Golds, Princeton, the Redland, there is no coastal ridge protecting them. Yeah. So you get a big enough surge that comes in uh, south, you know, in the area of Turkey Point, and it there's nothing to stop it. If it's a big, it has to be a huge surge, obviously, but it's flat. It's And it's flat, and it's kind of downhill going into the Everglades. So, uh, yes, yes, it's potential. There is the potential of getting storm surge all the way across the Southern Peninsula, mm, which, yes, it is a, it's a, it's a scary thought for, for sure. You know, uh, I've varied over the years trying to figure out how to describe what those storm surge forecasts are predicting. And these days, I generally say the height of the water above normal high tide. Um, it's extra tricky because people don't, those just don't deal with this very often, right? People understand wind and rain because the wind blows every day. It rains heavy a lot, but storm surge is something different. So finding the right consistent words is is uh, <laughs> has not been trivial for sure. Well, that and do you ever use like Google Maps and you're driving somewhere and it says in two miles, turn right. And then it says mm -hmm. in a mile, turn right. And then it says in 500 feet, turn right. That kind of short circuits my brain. I know conceptually what 500 feet is, but when you're driving, is that like turn right now? Is that <laughs> yeah, So right. it becomes odd because you don't think in terms of feet when you're driving. Similar kind of when you're thinking of storm surge, what does seven feet mean? And mm -hmm. what does 20 feet mean? I right. Now I have to take, again, a little bit of mental horsepower and uh, conceptualize that, get a visual in my mind. And I remember in Irma that they, the, it was actually the storm surge unit. Taylor Trogdon is one of the meteorologists there. And he was posting up on social media. He would say, this is what, I forget what the surge forecast was, but he was had a kayak up on its end. And then he would stand right next to the kayak yeah, and I give that. you an idea. And I thought, okay, now I, but it's difficult to do with just the numbers and just looking at the maps mm -hmm. and then thinking too, what, what's that mean once you get away from the beach? Yeah, the elevation's not going to go up much, but it'll go up some. What's that going to mean at my house that, and me personally, I'm right next, I'm fairly close to the beach, not right next to the beach. What does that mean here? Really difficult things to try to uh, pinpoint and make heads and tails of. 
Of course, that's what the evacuation zones, that's what evacuating is all about, right? Sure. That's why, yeah. the, and which we don't have a good way of communicating uh, evacuation zones uh, at all. And it's worse in uh, Miami-Dade than it is in Broward. In Broward, they keep it very simple. In Miami-Dade, it's stunningly uh, Stunningly complicated. All right. So next week on the podcast, we're going to talk to a couple of very prolific young meteorologists, Matthew Capucci from the uh, Washington Post Capital Weather Gang and Jack Sillen from the web weather website, uh, weather.us and other stuff that Jack does. I mean, if you're on weather Twitter, you see them all the time. They're just cranking out uh, really interesting uh, stuff on social media. It's uh, pretty amazing. So we'll talk to the new generation of accomplished meteorologists. So until then, keep an eye on the tropics, uh, everybody. It's still uh, happening out there. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week, everybody. Be well, stay safe, and please wear a mask. Thank you. Thank you.